Didn't Jesus say today is the first day of the rest of your life somewhere? He did not say that. (laughs) Jesus never says that. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. My name is Nathan. And I'm Peter, and we are so excited to have this one episode, although we might get talking and it may go on longer. Oh, God. Don't don't tempt the gods, Peter. (laughs) Pick up season two of Apple TV's Schmigadoon. Yes, Schmicago. Schmicago. I I don't think that's its official term. Every time I've I've gone searching for it, it is still called Schmigadoon Season 2. Although this is very clearly, we are in a different world than Schmigadoon. We're in a very different world. And and we're recording this just days after the final episode dropped. So I think, for me anyway, I'm still absorbing this Mm -hmm. uh, uh, musical theater post the uh, golden age of musicals on shuffle. So we're no longer in the world of Music Man, Oklahoma, Carousel, etc. that we were in the first season. We have shifted really a generation, if you want to think about it that way, right? And yep. Uh, yep. now in the world of Stephen Schwartz and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim and uh, no happy endings here. No happy oh, endings. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. I want to. That's where, well. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, I think if the typecast is that musical theater of the golden age all has happy endings, right? I think that's kind of mischaracterizing the golden age in some way. I, I agree. I agree. Although they play with that idea in Schmigadoon season one, right? It, right? Which is very much about true love. And I think they're, they we're sort of playing with the idea of golden age musicals are supposed to end with a marriage. They don't actually, as you and I have, as you just, they don't all. In fact, many of them don't. So. I think Schmigadoon season one is playing with the idea of what is true love. How do you know? How do you know when you found it? That becomes the thing that they're looking for in order to get them across the bridge. Remember, right? Um, so season two, they come into it, and here the question is happiness, right. right? Josh and Melissa have have been married. They're trying for a baby. They bought a house together. They're successful in their careers, and they are not happy, right? And that's you know, Josh comes to Melissa and says, "Why don't we?" And she immediately says, "Yes, let's do it." Like they both have been thinking, it's time for us to go back to Schmigadoon. What they're trying to do is go back to the 40s, 50s, golden age world of Sh- like that's what they're hoping to find, right? Is 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 Brigadoon? They want to go. They want to get back to the enchanted world where I think Melissa even says, like, I miss all of the happy colors and everybody singing happy songs about love. That is not what they find. Broadway musicals of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, which is a darker, grittier, much more caustic world. So that becomes actually, I think, a really interesting place to think about what is happiness if there are if there are no happy endings. And I think where the where the season two arc takes us is there is no such thing as a happy ending. That's a that's a false idea. I do I do want to asterisk this because I know we're going to get to that end. I have a lot of questions about why Chicago chooses to end their very dark arc in in the way that it does. I have I have a little bit of I have questions yeah, about that. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's our but that's our but that's our theological premise for season two. What is happiness? Yes. Um, how do you and that and that becomes the thing that they are you know the, the leprechaun shows up again right like in in order to cross back over the bridge back into your normal life you have to find happiness I guess I mean I think that's kind of what he that's what he asks them to do. Mm-hmm. 
Fresh Macago welcomes your return. But it seems ye both have more to learn. For though tis true ye found true love, that isn't all ye have need of. So now it's here your lives ye'll spend until ye made a happy end. Yeah, first they think is going to be a, a resolution of the um, the injustice that happens to he's accused of a murder he didn't commit. So in some ways, I think season two is doing the Sondheim first act wrapped up, total cohesive story, everything ends happily, and then half, that, that happens at the end of season, at the end of episode three, I think, and then there's three more episodes in act two um, that then explode the happiness that the, yeah. everything goes wrong. Please. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the structure we're working with yeah. in season two. Yeah, yeah. So into the world of, and it's a bizarre world the way they mix it up when, when, I, when I think about it, because you've got uh, the shows that they're, they're, they're parodying, they're setting up, they're improvising on. Uh, you've got uh, on the sort of dark side, Chicago and Cabaret and Sweeney yep. Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yeah, those are probably the three big, I mean, obvious. You've got characters lifted out of all three of those shows, almost wholesale. Yeah. And then on the brighter side, I guess um, uh, you've got, gosh, well, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, and the other Stephen Schwartz uh, that you know well. Oh, Pippin. Pippin. I would, yeah, it. I would put, I would put, I would put Pippin on the dark side. But yes, Pippin is a, a also a, a lot of direct references to Pippin and to to Hair Godspell. Hair Godspell get kind of mashed. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then musical references to Jesus Christ Superstar. Really only, I think, well, I suppose the Krat, the, the bad guy, is both kind of Turpin, but then kind of becomes a Pharisee. Musically, he's a, he's a Pharisee. from Because he's Christ got a Superstar. deep so voice. So there's a little bit of, he's got a deep <laughs> voice, right? So that's a, that, that's, yeah, that's voice casting. Yeah. But yeah, the direct references, I th- certainly in terms of the characters, you've got Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett, you've got Sally Bowles, you've got the leading player from Pippin, you've got either it's sort of Jesus slash Claude from Hare, are those the well, and, and then I got I suppose the then the orphans from Annie also the orphans make a, from Annie make a who end up to be the food pretty direct for appearance, the yeah, meat yeah. pies that uh, Sweeney Todd and and uh, the character of Mrs. Lovett is kind of mashed with Miss mm-hmm. Harrington with Ms. from Hannigan, Anne, Hannigan, 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 which which is I, that's my favorite like of, of all the mashups. I, it's never occurred to me that Mrs. Lovett and Miss Hannigan are are I mean like not at all the same character, not at all the same musically. But what a great what a great combo yeah. to give kind of little girls and the best pies in London as a mashup. I just thought like, oh, that's, <laughs> this is, this is why I tune into Schmigadoon because that, that is what you will get. And you get Christian Chenna with doing it, which is perfect casting in both of those roles, yes. right? Yes, like yes. the casting that you're never going to, she's never played Miss Hannigan to my, to my knowledge. She's never played Mrs. Lovett. And she, I don't need her to because I've seen her do it now, yeah. right? Like I've seen, I've seen that role happen and it's, it's just magical. Yeah. Good day, miss. Looking pretty, looking lonely. Looks like you could use a child or two or three for a very modest fee. If by any chance you're searching for an urchin, I got your merchandise right here. But I'll be clear, tell you straight, they're not great. And they don't appreciate, they're possibly the worst brat in town. So it's really Pippin that frames it, the character... The, the song uh, Magic, uh, what's the Pippin song? Magic to Do, magic yeah. To That's do. the kind of the, yep. Yeah, that becomes Welcome Welcome to Chicago is basically magic to do. Almost a whole, I think it's in, where where I started going down, this is this is where my nerdery took me this morning, <laughs> Peter, was um, <laughs> comparing the um, the Chicago songs that are that are almost direct lifts. In fact, to, to the degree where it's like, is this a copyright infringement? Where it's like the piano riff is, I mean, the orchestration, everything is yeah. almost tit for tat. And there's other songs in Chicago that are a little more, you know, it's like inspired by, but doing something a little, a little, or even sort of a mashup of stuff. But um, Welcome to Chicago is in the same key. Oh, as Magic you discovered that? I mean, eh? I mean that's, almost yeah. yes. Wow. That's that's how I'm coding. Where where he's almost parroting the original material, he almost always preserves the original key. And that is a level of music. And I, and that, that's kind of what makes my little musical geek 
heart sing where like this guy is and I actually and I heard Cinco Paul interviewed where he talks about like you know I would sort of I'd listen to the score of a show I would actually sit down and study the score so he knows um he's he's a good musical theater technician he knows the score really well he knows the orchestrations really well he's got the musicality in his ear so when he sits down to basically kind of do a parody song of a particular song he's doing it in the original key um there's a couple places where he he preserves you know almost almost beat for beat the the arc of a song, the musicality of a song, some of the particular vocal and and musical riffs of a song. Um, it's it's really, I mean, at one level, you know, it's a little, it, as I say, it's almost copyright infringement, but it's so faithful and it's so um, honoring of the original material. I think that's what makes me so happy, is this is a man who loves, knows intimately the material that he's parroting. So it's never making fun of, it's never a send-up. It is always a loving homage. And that feels so, um, so right yeah. to me. Well, and I... I don't know what generation he is, is whether he's more your generation or mine or somewhere in between, I I think he's somewhere in between us. Yeah, Yeah. I think he's a Gen Xer. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was immediately drawn to was my own own autobiographical journey of uh, growing up in the era of musical theater of of the Golden Age, largely. I mean, born in 1954, so uh, a lot of these shows were happening. Sound of Music is 1965. And then something happened in the world, right? And certainly something happened on Broadway. And certainly something happened with hair. And then with Godspell and with Jesus Christ Superstar. And I guess I'm just trying to place Cabaret. I think Cabaret is somewhere around Sound of Music, 67. Yeah, isn't it like 60, 65, 66, 67? Somewhere in there. Yeah. And so I, that zeitgeist of the changed world, right? The social revolution of the 60s, the cynicism of the 70s, away from the sunny costumes of the 40s and 50s and early 60s. He's really chronicling and parroting and sending up how that, how that world, how that world changed, uh, yeah. uh, for, for so many of us. And so, I mean, I was drawn in, uh, by, by that immediately. Like, no longer when you go to Broadway are you, able to escape into a fairy land <laughs> well i guess they're always a bit of a fairy land well there's always on, yeah there's always a jukebox uh, musical to yeah <laughs> and i'm thinking about the song uh do we shock you where i think that yeah. gets yeah uh, like that names it right out right out of the gate yeah, right yeah, yes yeah, yeah yeah do we shock you make you ill at ease do we offend your tender sense of To boys and girls Does that just blow your mind? Other girls get faint and tipped Us, we just like to get spanked and whipped What's so great about Do We Shock You? And Josh and Melissa completely signal this to us. is like, all of the things that they say to shock you Don't are no longer shocking. Right. It's, I have a tattoo. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so do I, sweetheart. Like, But that's, I mean, it's interesting, though, because my sense is what that song is, is, is parroting, right? Like, nothing about this number is particularly shocking. But I think it's also asking us to think, like, was it in 1965? I mean, Peter, you were there. Right. I think, it you was. know, the moment when the, when the cast of hair took their clothes off that was the only thing that people knew about hair it was it was hugely shocking i mean theaters were shut down because they had to change the they had to change the law in great britain in order for hair to open on the west end because it would have it would have been it would have been illegal for them to i think some of that was the profanity act um, but hair was a, it was a cultural reset for what you could do on stage. I, I think Sweet Charity, and that's the number that's being parodied, right? Hey, Big Spender. Um, I think it was kind of, although it also got done in high schools. So I don't know. I have all kinds of questions about like, was this really intended to shock or, 
Or is it a is it a safe shock in the well, way that I think yeah, that Schmigadoon is Cap- Cabaret absolutely had to change the lyrics of if you could see her as I do. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, until the movie, it wasn't she wouldn't look Jewish at all um, yeah. because that line the audiences could not accept back when right. it, it, it did it did shock them. Yes, yeah. it did shock the yeah. audience. Yeah, and certainly Jesus Christ Superstar, which we've talked about. Um, was groundbreaking in its time. Uh, we've had that conversation. Uh, Godspell was seen in, by some as blasphemous, showing Jesus as a, as a clown. It was a bit shocking. I mean, once you got there, I mean, once you got to Hair, once you got to JC Superstar or Godspell, you, it was so what? I mean, the nude scene in Hair was in so much darkness that you would have to have, you know, x-ray vision to get off i guess yeah. yeah yeah but do we shock you and to a certain degree then i mean they also parody the, the naked moment in hair right i think it's everybody's got to get naked yes. is the song you know so so kind of making it explicit but i think what the the shock that's being played with in 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 both of these numbers is it's not really the the shock of blasphemy it's the shock of sex yeah. right and that is the i mean and you, you and i've talked about this right if if we're gonna you know i don't want to be reductive but if we're gonna name the change that happens right around 1965 66 67 68 i mean there's all kinds of stuff that's happening there the civil rights movement the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, I also want to say the pill, the pill is the absolutely. big, like this is the cultural reset here, right? Sex is no longer about reproduction. Right. Sex is for fun. And I think that's the shock of, hey, big spender, now, right? Like, do we shock you? No, you do not. A man in a dress is, right? Like we are now, what, 50 years, 60 years out in, you know, kind of sex is no longer shocking. In fact, in some ways, and I think this is kind of what what uh, Schmicago is gently asking us to think about, sex is kind of boring now, <laughs> right? Like there's, yeah. in some ways, like it would be, it would be lovely. And, and, and the show kind of does. It's like, can this still titillate? Right. Can a bunch of, you know, beautiful girls in basically their underwear dancing around on chairs singing about like how depraved they are, can that still titillate? Or is that just campy fun? I think it's just campy fun. Right, right. And, th- and there's something... There's something a little bittersweet about that. Sex has lost its power to shock us. And I, and I think a little bit, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm completely projecting a bunch, of, but I wonder to what degree the creators of Chicago are asking us to think about that, right? Have we lost something in that sex no longer has the power to titillate or shock us? Have we become so, um, so demurred, to, so, so kind of, you know, accustomed to this level? Nothing here can shock us. We are so jaded. We're so sophisticated. And there's a little bit of a longing for the innocence of, of sweet charity, I suppose, and hair. Like the days when you could show up at a Broadway theater and actors taking their clothes off in the dark was titillating and exciting and shocking and bad and nasty. And, you know, and you're, you didn't want to see it with your parents. Right, um, right. How, how does theater still have the power to shock us in, in, the, in terms of, of the, sex, the sex aspect or not? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think so too. And the, I mean, I think the thing about the pill was giving not just reproductive choice to women, um, but the opportunity for women to be uh, as sexually free as men had always been. Had been for <laughs> hundreds um, and hundreds of years. And yeah. that changed all sorts of dynamics. And I, in my mind, because I lived through that era, um, the, the pill and the Is God Dead cover of Time magazine are also conflated. And we have this reimagining of religion and spirituality that I think Chicago actually engages. Uh, I mean, I remember when the first couple episodes aired and we, you and I were talking about, should we do a series on this? And you said something, well, yeah, I guess I'm not sure what there is theological about Chicago. And then by the end of the final season, yeah. this is... Um, and, and lots of people are going down many rabbit holes on the internet about Chicago and all the references and that sort of stuff. But to our, uh, to our project, this is wildly theological. Um, yeah, I agree. if not I theological, agree. uh, and I think it's a theology that incorporates or it's, it's how theology had to change because of the pill, because God was dead, because the world was, is, increasingly fucked up which um so theology had to be reimagined in the hair in the pippin in the god spell and the jesus christ superstar very strong and persistent and consistent references throughout 
Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and different, different, I mean, so if I'm going to, yeah, different theologies in some of the, right? Like I think about like Chicago and, and Cabaret, which is kind of where, where Chicago begins is with those kind of 20s pastiche. That's Candor and Ebb, right? It's the musicality of Candor and Ebb. Um, so it's, it's, um, that's a particular kind of, I, I want to say musical theater theology, right? Da, 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 da. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's bright, it's flashy. This is Bobby, right? This is the lawyer character played brilliantly by, by, um, Jane Krakowski. Um, she, she's, she's doing total flim flam, bamboozlery. It's like the whole, all of life is razzle dazzle. There is nothing authentic about, so we're doing this in the theater. This is meta theatrical stuff, right? Like it's, it's often diegetic material, right? It's shows about show people. But the theology here is there is no such thing as truth. Truth is completely arbitrary. All it is is dazzle. If you can dazzle them, you can get away with anything. It's a very, I mean, so, I mean, and I think Cabaret actually then does kind of draw the line between if you can dazzle them, you can do anything and the rise of fascism, which is a really important political aspect, right? But that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a theology, right? There is no such thing as truth. There is only flash in the pan. There is only razzle dazzle. I think Pippin to a certain degree is playing with that idea too. And I want to flag this because I think the end of Chicago does almost pull a Pippin punch that I want to think about. Basically, you know, here again, right? Like, there's no such thing as authenticity. There's just show. Embrace the show. And at the end of Pippin, actually, Pippin pushes back. He refuses to um to to burn himself. Right? He refuses to go up in smoke. At the end, he chooses this very simple love with Catherine, who he's found, and the leading player is infuriated and basically takes away the theater. And Pippin is left standing there in the you know the house lights. Ta-da! Um, and that's kind of where Chicago starts to starts to write its conclusion. This kind of basically a rejection of the basically a rejection of the theology that there is no truth, there is only flimflam, and saying no, actually, love is true. Love is not theatrical. Love is not flimflam, but love is true. And I think that's kind of where the Chicago arc is going. Yeah. Right? It is not. Uh, it is not. Uh, God is dead. There is no meaning. Everything is arbitrary, so therefore, fuck it, just have a lot of fun. Right. That's actually not what Chicago is saying. It's a little more traditionally Christian, I suppose, I so. in the, saying love matters, truth matters, beauty matters. Um, so in some ways, Chicago is playing with the, the implicit theology of the musicals of the 70s and 80s, which are, which are kind of caught. Now, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell certainly, like there, there, there are other voices. Sweeney Todd, I want to flag, cause that's a, as we have, as we have talked about, that's a deeply theological show, but it is basically a kind of, you know, post-Christian God is dead, so there's only violence and vengeance. Um, that's, that's a, that's a even darker, I suppose, image of humanity than, than even Chicago and, and Cabaret offer. Um, and, and, Sh- and Schmicago kind of dances up to that idea, but then really pulls back, right? This is not a show about the, the orphans are not going to get killed and eaten as they, not really orphans, but I mean, you know, Sweeney Todd, <laughs> people are eaten and in Chicago, no one is eaten. We, we, we play with that idea. We flirt, but at the end of, at the end of Chicago, Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett end up in each other's arms. I mean, it's a happy ending for every single character other than Kratt who gets immolated. So my sense is Chicago is engaging the seventies and eighties theology of nihilism and then rejecting it. And, and, and I have, at one level, I'm like, that, that's a, that's a really interesting theological shift. And I have a lot of questions about it. Because there's a piece of me that's a little disappointed by that. I would love, I would love to see the show really engage the death of God theology. As the theologians of the 70s, 60s and 70s and 80s did. What do you, what meaning is there in community? What is church? What is love? What is romance? What is sex? If there's no meta narrative here of good and bad. How do we what what how do we know what to do? What what do ethics look like in a post divinity world? I think that's a you know that that is the question of the latter half of the twentieth century. It's certainly the musical the question of the musicals. Um, and I I kind of want the show to engage that a little more, not just play with it, not just kind of reference it, not laugh at it, but actually go there. And I actually I feel like I mean the question that kind of frames this whole se- second season of Chicago, what is happiness? Right. I think that is the question. Well, and um, I think yeah, I I agree, and I think the if when that becomes the driving question, what is happiness? You kind of end up in hmm, a what is happiness for you? A kind of relativism. Mm-hmm. It becomes very focused on individualistic, on individualistic yeah. stuff as opposed to community things. Like I don't get a even though everybody's singing and dancing at the end, or at least singing at the end, I don't get a sense that 
the town, the, the, that, that, that the people in Chicago have been redeemed, that they are better. It, everybody is sort of stuck, are they? I'm just trying to, huh. I'm thinking, I'm thinking yeah. out loud here. Um, sure. There's, there's not a sense that the world's going to be a better place. It's going to be a better place for, for, for Josh and Melissa. For Josh and Melissa. They yeah, as they go the- back to downtown Vancouver. <laughs> Standing in for New York. Um, uh-huh. and you know, they, she gets pregnant and I guess they, uh, live happily ever after, but has the I mean, world they kinda, been transformed? I guess yeah. their world well, they, has. Yeah. Yeah. Their world has. And, and the show does kind of play with this idea, right? The kind of the, the act break, you know, Josh is, Josh is, uh, is, is freed from prison. Melissa, you know, so it's like, oh, we've, we've achieved happiness. We can leave. And they can't leave. So she says, oh, maybe we have to, maybe it's not just about our happiness. Like maybe we have to, that's, that becomes a second act of, of Chicago. They start trying to pair everybody up, right? We got to get Jenny connected with her father again. Uh, we've got to figure out like who needs to fall in love with whom. They try to partner Jenny up with, um, oh, you know, the Pippin character with the Aaron's face character uh Topher uh we got we got to ma- basically we got to match everybody up we got to get happiness for the community it can't just be for us so they they do kind of okay, play enough. with this yeah, idea yeah. um but yeah but like you right like i'm a little disappointed in that ending because basically as you I, as you say like i mean i guess you know Sweeney Todd, who whatever his name is, Dooley Pratt or something like that. <laughs> I'm going to call him Sweeney. Alan Cumming um, does, you know, like he does move past his vengeance arc. So I guess, you know, like it's a very, um, it's a very thin kind of redemption. It's a very it's, schematic yeah. kind of redemption. Yeah. I don't really buy it. I don't buy it for Sweeney Todd. I don't buy it for Mrs. Lovett. Mostly because I know the show that, that those characters are referencing. And I find the original material so much more powerful than if Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett decide, oh, I guess I don't really have to kill everybody. I can, like, I can just find love instead. And there's a piece of me that's like, no, that's not, that's not what Sweeney Todd is, that's not what that show is about. I, you know, I, yes, at one level, killing people is not as good as falling in love with somebody. Yes, of course, I would rather have you fall in love with somebody, have really good sex with Christian Chenna within a bed, and then, you know, like, come back and sing a finale about how there's no such thing as a happy ending, there's happy beginnings. But I find, I find that, this is, I guess, the time to say, I find that final number of Chicago really unsatisfying. There's no happy endings, no such thing as a happy ending. So at one level, this is this is this is the theology of the mid-century. Eh, so what? But then it but then it it returns to a kind of, I want to say a kind of pablum. So the so what we what we've got is a happy beginning. And I want to say, like, is that is that all there is? <laughs> is that all there, there is? You go, I, 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 yeah. I find that really unsatisfying. Yeah, like I th- I think it does ridicule in some ways. Uh, especially in the everybody, everyone's got to get naked, and um, with the Godspell slash Pippin slash Hare troop, who are kind of sent up as naive, uh, a little dumb, um, well-meaning, out of touch with with reality. Um, I mean, when when I was watching it, I was thinking. This is the way that the I'm hearing critics of, in quotes, woke culture refer to those of us who embrace woke culture, right? We are naive. We're, uh, if everybody loved every, everybody else, the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. We got to make room for everybody, et cetera, et cetera. The, the Topher's line is like, we've, we've been protesting injustice by taking off our clothes and telling parables. And Josh is like, ah, well, there might be, let's think about some other tactics <laughs> by, by which we might attack an unjust society because getting naked isn't going to do it. There's pop. 
I think I, that song is gently kind of parroting a certain kind of progressive culture, yes. right? I mean, I suppose it, uh, directly it's a 70s progressive culture. But I think you're right to draw the line to the contemporary world, yeah. right? It's not enough to take all your clothes, dance around naked. I mean... You know, it's not, they're not all white kids in that cast. They're a, they're a very deliberately multiracial cast. But I think there is a little bit of a gentle parody of contemporary progressive, uh, we might, yeah, woke culture. Um, it's, yeah, like, what, what are, what are, what is the mechanism by which society is going to be changed? Justice is going to be achieved for those who have not had it. It's not going to happen through taking your clothes off and telling parables. Right. Um, Nor is it yeah. reducing gospel to love. I mean, I, I get in trouble when yeah. I do preaching. Uh, courses quoting Christer Stendhal, who one of his Ten Commandments of preaching, the great Christer Stendhal, the uh, New Testament um, New Testament scholar, became a bishop in the Lutheran Church, who said uh, one of his one of his Ten Commandments of, of of preaching is, "Do not use the word love in a sermon if it is not in the text you're preaching on." Oh, that's good. Well, it is good, yeah. and I I hear uh, to my horror. Numerous preachers um, who you can almost s- smell the wood burning as they move through a text, trying to get to love. Uh, love is the answer, and that that kind of pops up with this troupe. They yeah uh, are they. It's, they it's reduce- the flimsiness of that answer, right? Yeah, let's just take off. All, if everybody would just love love each other, the world would be a better place, right? And I think you know both the the mid century musicals that, that Chicago is referencing, and also you know like you, I, I, from our contemporary vantage point, we would say. Yeah, no bullshit. Like right. that's that's not actually. I mean, yes, I do believe that love. You know, like I I am I, I do follow the teachings of Jesus. I do believe in the power of love, but not in that gimmicky kind of reflexive way that I think often, to your point, contemporary progressives revert to. Yeah. Right. If we could all just, and sometimes this, this becomes the way that we think about interreligious conflict. Right. If we could all just realize that all religions are basically teaching us to, the gold, some version of the golden rule, and I think no, actually, that's. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But it's like that's not a sufficient answer. Right. That doesn't that doesn't negate the the reasons why people have actual and, and real conflict with one another. Um, and I and I do want I want I want Chicago and I want contemporary people of faith to engage really honestly. That love is not always that might be where we end up. But saying it at the outset circumvents the whole struggle process right. of what it means to engage the other, what it means to engage somebody who's different, what it means to actually tear apart complicated questions about justice. Uh, and ethics and what's right and what's wrong. Well, and the only way they can they can really deal with evil is to drop the chandelier on the guy, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yep. Which is at some level saying, and I mean, I thought that was a brilliant moment. I laughed out loud. It's a great moment. It's a great call out. Spoiler yeah. <laughs> alert, I guess, for anybody who hasn't seen it. But yes, what a what a what a brilliant way to go. But you know what? How do you deal with the collision between the world of cabaret and the world of hair? Now, hair just to be fair to it, ends up actually being quite poignant because the protagonist, Berger, ends up going in the place of the other guy and ends up being killed in Vietnam, at least the way Milos Forman created the story for the film, which I think is as, as good as the... It's a whole other thing. But So there is this sense of standing in for. Love means... Sacrifice. I'm not talking about blood sacrifice. Although I guess I am talking about blood sacrifice. Uh, yeah, in that uh, case. In that yeah. case. But yeah, um, uh-huh. and and that's where Schmigadoon Sh- season one. Remember the, the the sermon that Fred Armisen, the preacher, preaches. Right, like love is not about being the perfect person or finding the perfect person. He and then he quotes First Corinthians. Right, like love is patient, love is kind. I think where he ends is um, love. Uh, Uh, it's about endurance, right? It's about staying in something hard. I think if if there's a theological principle in Schmigadoon season one, it's true love is sticking in something hard, even when, even and especially when it is hard, because that's actually real. Love is not, love is not the bright colors and the, and the warm fuzzies and the easy, like, let's, let's just all take off our clothes and writhe around on the floor a little bit. No, that's not love. That's something else. Love is a commitment to difficulty. Love is a commitment to pain, we might say. Love is a commitment to a kind of suffering. Um, that, that is deeply Christian. That's how I want to think about the power of love in the Christian tradition. And I, I, I want to find that somewhere in Chicago. I want to find that in the season two material, right? That, that, and I, and I, I think it's, it, it, you know, they're, they're playing with that idea, right? Happiness is more complicated than a happy ending. There's no such thing as a happy ending. 
okay, yes, I like that idea, right? Like, we're not looking for everything to be wrapped up in a neat little bow at the end. Although then at the end of the thing, they everything's wrap wrapped up in a neat little bow. Yeah. And that's the part that I, I just find, I mean, I, I kind of like the song, you know, because it feels like Avenue Q to me a little bit. I think that's the, the musicality that I hear in, uh, you know, Happy Beginning, you know, it feels a little kind of, you know, everything's a little bit messed up, but okay, let's, you know, like, let's, every day is a new day. And every day is a new day seems pablamy to me. Yeah. I, I'm I'm disappointed in that because I mean I don't I don't disagree with that. Every day is a new day. But as a as a um as a theological slash ethical principle to to combat the nihilistic darkness of the world, I find that insufficient. So what did you make of the the sending up of parables? And I'm thinking particularly in the scene where Joshua is in jail, I guess, and uh Jaime uh is the guard and uh, uh, Joshua? Yeah, and Josh is almost. There was once, uh, you know, uh, um, a rebel a slave. Rebel slave. Right, yeah, there was uh-huh. this. There was that. And it's it's connecting with the guard, right? I mean, mm-hmm, he he's mm-hmm. clearly thinking about it, although clearly being smart isn't his strong suit. Um, no, he's not the, the smartest character in the world. And there are, yeah, they keep they keep coming back to the parables. I mean, that's Godspell because yep. Godspell is based yeah. on the Gospel of Matthew, and they turn the parables and Godspell, as everybody knows, into uh, theater games. Um, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But I wasn't sure what was being well, w- what they're trying to say there about the parables that they're made up, that they're bullshit, or uh-huh. that. There's something about a story that will get through to somebody even more than a rational argument. Like that's it. I mean, yeah, that I feel like when you are the creators of a television show, you gotta. I mean, you gotta at one level believe in the power of storytelling. I mean, at one level, at the meta level, I I I can't help but think some of this is about a little bit of this is a masterclass in how how to tell and how not to tell a parable right because right. it begins and i think it's the second episode when the the tribe puts on the 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 lamb parable for john and it's very godspell and it's very stupid and you can see him rolling his eyes at the, right like this is ridiculous they are so earnest they're trying so hard and it's dumb i mean like all of their impressions are bad it's just not it's a bad production of godspell i think is what we're right like yeah. this is bad this is bad parables then they they sing talk to daddy to jenny and they they call that a right like and that's a different kind of a parable right that's a broadway that's a big splashy broadway fosse dance number so that's so here's that that's interesting right every musical is a parable every song in a musical is a kind of a parable that that song is is deliberately a parable they actually tell the parable of the prodigal son in the context of the song i think he's a it's a guy named i wrote it down they have they talk about pretty pe- pretty penny and they talk about loco lenny whose dad gives him all the money and lenny spends it and then he realizes his life has fallen apart so he has to talk to daddy it is the it is the parable of the prodigal son Well, he hadn't any. His wealthy pops had a help you, Sonny. But Lanny said, nah, I don't need your money. A few months passed, he was passed out in the gutter. You got real close, you could hear him mutter. Mutter, 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 So, talk to Daddy, talk, talk to Daddy. He will rock you when you are sad. He left you alone, but maybe he's grown so. So I think Talk to Daddy is a musical version of The Prodigal Son. They're telling the story of The Prodigal Son to Jenny, hoping that she will see herself in that story, realize, oh, I need to reconnect with my father. Her father is Sweeney Todd. This is... <laughs> but th- th- that's that's how Josh and Melissa are attempting to find community happiness, right, and get out of Chicago, is by reconnecting Jenny with her dad, which they imagine will, will pull Sweeney Todd away from his need for vengeance and reunite the family, basically, right? Like, let's recreate the family uh, if we can just get Jenny. So they use the parable of the prodigal son. And Jenny gets into the song, but completely, right? It does not resonate with her in any way. They're like, okay, well, that didn't that didn't work. So then, yes, then the final moment is that scene in the boiler room, right? Where where Josh, as the kind of the new Jesus character, the new kind of leader of the tribe, um, is frantically trying to come up with parables, basically in a kind of like Thousand and One Nights Scheherazade kind of, if I just keep telling parables to this guy, right. he's not going to kill me. I right. think that's that's a little bit what's happening there. And I think you're right. I think he does finally land on a story 
about it's the it's the guard i can't remember the name of the character the guard who you know like we we are we're we're it's suggested to us he has a longing to be on the stage his uncle is crat his uncle has basically just kind of kept uh kept this kind of dangling promise if you keep working for me i'll eventually give you what you want and so josh basically tells him a parable about like you know he's never going to give you what you want you're going to have to take agency for yourself like leave your uncle behind by the end of the thing we've discovered that the, the the policeman's dream is to you know basically do Rocky Horror Picture Show as Frank Furter. so that's fun. Um, but there, I think yeah, I think the parable does finally work, right? Yeah. Josh figures out a way to basically preach a sermon yeah. in which that character sees himself and is able to confront his choices and make different choices. So there, I think yes, that is how. So if I'm reading that at the meta level of of the creators of Chicago of Schmigadoon, you know, this is how a story can change somebody's life. And they really want to, right, hold that. And, 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 I, and I'm sympathetic to that, too, right? I do believe that a well-told story can change your life. I think that is the power of the gospel. I think that's the power of musical theater. I think that's the power of any kind of art form that gives us a story that is not, uh, it's not directly about us, but allows us to see something, to project something, to engage emotionally in a story that might then cause us to make some different choices right, in our lives. Right. I think that is actually a beautiful illustration of how parables don't work and then how they, how they can. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's really then about the transformation of consciousness is, uh, yeah. is the purpose of the parable. And I guess what I kind of liked about him trying a whole bunch of parables, uh, until he found one that worked. Until he found one that sticks. <laughs> is, I mean, isn't that the task for those of us who are preachers? Like you, yeah. you, you get up and you tell a story that has had maybe some transformative moment in your life and it just falls flat. People just, do not connect just does not with land. it. Um, but yeah. every now and then, I'd say by the grace of God, uh, a preacher or a, a, a spiritual teacher finds that extraordinary moment where uh, an ancient story connects with a, a, a with a, with a with a contemporary experience, and you can just as, as a preacher, you can feel the energy shift. You can feel that folks have have connected with this story in a deeper way and that they're never going to, it's really, is it really, I was going to say, so let me say it. You're never going to see the world the same way. And is that about as much as we can hope for the, for transformation? Is it, uh, and then uh, what, what I, my, my critical mind starts saying, well, then you're just back into the world of individualism and really not into social mm-hmm. transformation. Mm-hmm. Individual transformation, yeah. yeah. But social transformation is only going to happen if there is individual transformation or are there deeper... Th- I mean, structurally, things have to change, I guess, would be my social justice. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the structural argument is like, I don't really care like about changing people's hearts and minds. What I want is to change the structures of society so that I'm not, you know, my, my life and people who are <laughs> less privileged than I am are not constantly, you know, getting beaten and killed right. in and the streets, right? Right, and if you change right? the like, structures, so, it's going to change the mindset is, is right, the yeah. notion there. Sort of the argument there, yeah. No, I think there, but I think there is something really interesting about, I mean, just kind of back to your point about preaching, right? Like there's a, there's a little bit of a cautionary tale in Chicago around the danger of thinking as a preacher that I know the parable that's going to unlock something for somebody and basically inflicting it on them, right? That never works in Shmigadun. And I think you and I can say as preachers, that never works in preaching either. When you, when you think you know better than somebody else and you're trying to manipulate them into the transformation that you think they need. So you tell the story that you think is going to going to unlock that nine times out of 10 it either completely goes over their head and they're like whatever or they react really negatively right like don't like that because that that is fundamentally manipulative exactly Um, and i think and i think that's the danger of i mean we might say bad musicals bad tv and i would say bad preaching is trying to manipulate an audience to take them where you think they should go whereas i think like holy preaching holy storytelling is telling a story completely authentically but then letting letting it go into the ether into that space between an audience and a performer and letting the spirit do whatever she's going to do with that story yeah. and really kind of renouncing control over it and i think i mean i'm i'm, I'm putting a little too fine of a point on this but i think that's kind of where josh lands right i'm just going to keep throwing stories out there and hope that at some point the spirit is going to work in the heart of this police i don't think josh is thinking about the spirit I don't, <laughs> but like at, at some point yeah. in, in a way that i actually have no control over this will make a difference somehow but i can't know how that's going to happen when it's going to happen what story is going to unlock that that transformation of the heart um i shouldn't know i need to get out of the way so that the stories i have in my toolbox can do their work 
Um, but that, but that to me feels like the, the sort of the, the cautionary tale there yeah. around trying to do something that's a little too didactic versus just letting a story happen and letting people engage it in the way that they feel called to, Well, um, which is, I think, really how transformation happens. I think you're, yeah, I agree. And I guess maybe uh, the, 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 if Chicago is really about the transformation of Josh and Melissa, if mm-hmm. they go seeking happiness and I mean, it's this, the seeking of happiness is as old as the Greek philosophers, right? That was the big question of Aristotle and Plato. Uh, what is happiness? And, and I, you know, I agree with Richard Rohr that a lot of what poses as Christian teaching is more Greek than Hebrew. It, it's not particularly the, the, the question that the Hebrew scriptures ask about happiness so much as it is a, about season one from Schmigadoon, which is endurance, right? It's, it's being in for the long haul as opposed to finding happiness. And maybe here we have this kind of collision between the tragic worlds of Sweeney Todd and Cabaret, the naive world of Godspell and Hare, and Josh and Melissa kind of navigating their way aware of the pain and injustice of the world, you know, the cabaret, um, Chicago corruption and, you know, the, the lawyer who can get you off of from anything, but turns against you and the naivete and ending up with, and this is to kind of your, the point you were making a while ago, there's no happy endings, but there are happy beginnings. We can have mm-hmm. an attitude that can maybe propel us through a little way. But if the, if the, if the goal is happy ever after, is Chicago saying that just doesn't exist and the best we can hope for is a happy beginning? Well, that's, yeah, that's what I, yeah, so is that enough? So the, the, the lyrics are, this world is a big old mess of pain and stress and people dragging you down. There's little chance of success and bad guys always winning. Then, then the, the, the shift, another voice comes in. Happy endings don't exist. But here's a pearl. See, and then this is where, theologically, I think, I, I think this is meant to be the show's pearl of great price. Here's a pearl you may have missed. Every day can be a happy beginning. Now, I, you, you tell me, you studied the gospel for longer than I have. I don't think Jesus ever says anything like every day can be a happy beginning. Didn't Jesus say today is the first day of the rest of your life somewhere? He did not say that. <laughs> Jesus never says that. See, and that's where it's, I, I, that, and this is, this is what I find so unsatisfying because this show is created by a good Mormon boy. He knows his scripture. He's a follower. Of, I don't know, but my sense is like, Cinco Paul is a follower of Jesus Christ. I think the, the teachings right. of Jesus Christ have changed, have, have shaped his outlook. And so what I turn to the show for is a really interesting contemporary riff on religion, on spirituality, on Christianity, on the church. And I find the idea that, you know, like, I mean, I, maybe this is rent, maybe this, you know, no day but today. I don't, I don't know. Like, I think there's a way of preaching what I think that song is trying to say that I actually do find pow- powerful. At the end of rent, when, you know, when they sing, forget regrets for life is yours to miss, no other road, no other path, no other. I mean, that to me feels like the, no if we're, today. if we're moving, yeah, if we're going to move the, uh, the, the narrative of the Broadway musical forward out of the darkness of the 70s and 80s, we're going to move into the 90s. I want to, I want to hear rent. I want to hear maybe Avenue Q, right? Which is a little bit of a spoof of Rent. Um, Contemporary musicals actually are offering a certain kind of hope. I I think the nihilistic world is a little bit, you know, it's like that doesn't sell tickets at the end of the day. I mean, it does when it's Sweeney Todd and it's a revival. Um, But people need need a sense of hope. I think we want to leave the theater, not with a sense of like, oh God, everything is unmitigated darkness. We want to leave with a sense of, okay, like there's got to be some kind of meaning that allows me to, to step out of the world of the theater and into the world of my life. So I, I'm sympathetic to what I think the show is trying to do, which is not leave us in a moment of despair. And I find that the, the you know that the pearl of every day can be a happy beginning just doesn't really cut it for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you and I just had the privilege of seeing the new production of Les Mis when we were in D.C., and it does. Uh, you know, the world is is shit. The th- awful things happen. Uh, every. The good die, the bad prosper, the dead, the bad die, and you feel badly for them. And Javier dies, and that. But then at the end, just to your point, uh, tomorrow comes. Like there is this, the, it leaves with this kind of, it. The struggle is worth it. Um, uh-huh. There is redemption. There's, 
There's yeah. hope. I mean, some of this, I, I almost wanted to criticize the song at the level of the music. Like, if it had been a soaring anthem, like, right. you know, like, like, like Les Mis, right? Where it's like the, the barricades coming back to life and they're like all the ghosts. I mean, there it's, I suppose, heaven. So it is a little bit of like, but the redemption at the end of Les Mis is Jean Valjean goes to heaven and joins Fantine and Eponine and all of the, the boys of the barricades. But it is this idea, right? That like the movement continues, the movement right? Continues. Each, each yeah. of us, each of us has our own moment. We all die, but the movement continues. The movement towards justice. Is, is continuing that that I do and musically when it's a big choral number that has like I cry yeah. I cry at the end yeah. of Les Mis yeah. I cry at the end of Rent I've so some of it's like the musicality of a big Broadway finale even if the lyrics are kind of stupid it works it because works. of the music and the so there my critique with with Chicago is like don't start with a freaking ukulele you guys like give us an anthem yeah. give me something that's a little more than dink dink a dink a dink a dink I mean like I just musically I find that unsatisfying. This world is a big old mess of pain and stress and people dragging you down. There's little chance of success. The bad guy's always winning. Happy endings don't exist. But here's a pearl you may have missed. Every day can be a happy beginning. A happy beginning. This life's filled with sad goodbyes and cloudy skies And days that don't seem to end The lows far exceed the highs There's not much cause for grinning Happy endings don't exist But here's a pearl you may But I wonder, just going back to Mormon roots uh, for Cinco Paul, the LDS theology is really about the happiness of a family and families being reunited. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the notion of eternal marriage, um, mm-hmm. celestial marriage, where you marry not just on earth, but also for eternity and you are reunited with your nuclear and extended family on your own planet. That they have a very sophisticated cosmology of what eternal life looks like, but it is rooted in 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 a in the nuclear, in the family. nuclear family. And I so yeah. I wonder the happy beginning at the end we had it's the, melissa getting pregnant isn't it i mean like there that's, you go. yeah she 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 gets pregnant which is what she i mean like it's yeah it's 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 into the woods i suppose they go into the woods to have a child and they come out of it and they get their child and they and the, so the salvation is 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 the birth of a child is a yeah. happy couple who have survived uh, by self-reliance uh these are big themes in Mormon theology that I think make Mormon theology, and I'm not putting it down, I have respect for it, but I don't think it's Christian. Not in the sort of the New Testament sort of no. way that we... Yeah. I mean, and for me, that's a, that's a statement of respect for the specificity of, 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 of LDS uh, theology. It's, it's not... It's explicitly not Christian in the same way that even though uh, Christians share a testament with Jews, it would be wrong to say that Jude- that, that Christian theology is, is, is Jewish, Jewish theology. That it's yes, not. Right. It's a different thing. Yeah, very different. And, I, very and different. so I just wonder, it was you that started with this, um, with the happy beginning thing. Um, and, and, and Tinkle Well, Paul. and that is kind of, yeah, if there's redemption at the end of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's Josh, it's, it's kind of the Pippin ending. It's Josh and Melissa basically, that's actually where I wish the show had just ended with the Pippin ending, right? Where Josh and Melissa turn to each other and say, yeah, this whole thing is fucked up, but I love you. Yes. You are enough for me. We're, it's not perfect. This is not a happy ending. We're going to continue to struggle. We may not make it. We may not get pregnant. I may end up falling in love with somebody else and leaving you. But what we have is real. I can look into your eyes. I believe in you. You. Be- we know each other. I think she even says, like, I want to be with somebody who knows me. 
All that he said was true There are no guarantees for me and you And magic is great every now and then But I want more The world can be cold There is something very powerful to me. That's a little different than the power of the nuclear family, um, but it is grounding. It's very individualistic, but it is grounding meaning in personal relationships. And, and that I do find satisfying at the level of pop culture, at the level of musical theater, maybe even a little bit at the, at the, at the level of theology, right? That like, if, if, if Christ is going to show up in my life, it's going to be in the body of another person, um, maybe in the corporate body of a gathered, of a gathered community. That is where God shows up. That, I think that's also the, the, the place where the individual story and the community story find resonance, right? right. It's, not, it's not one or the other, it's both. Happiness happens to, for us, transformation happens for us individually, it also happens for us in community, and those, those are linked, they're not, they're not separate. Um, so there is something magic to me about that, and I just, I wish that, I wish that then what had happened in Chicago was what happened in Pippin, where the leading player says, all right, you know, like, get out of here, you assholes, right? Like, we're going to take our flim-flam story and, and take it away. And basically, you know, it's like all of the lights, all of the costumes, all of the glamour goes away, and it's just two people, basically, I mean, naked, I suppose, before their god, you know, in their, in their kind of detritus of costumes, standing there holding hands. I mean, at the end of Pippin, actually, it is an image of a nuclear family. It's Pippin and Catherine and her little boy. Um, it, so, you know, I, I can see how as a Mormon creator, I would look at that image and be like, okay, right, that's actually consonant with my theology of w how God shows up in the world, how transformation happens. Um, so I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. I actually find, at one level, I find family to be a really beautiful way yes. of thinking about how redemption might happen. That's a slightly more corporate understanding than romantic love. Yes. So I'm, I'm on board with that, right? Romantic love is not enough. But the love that, that knits people together in the weird messiness of a family, yeah, there's something holy there. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, so yeah, I've, I've beaten this horse to death, but <laughs> I am not interested then in then shifting to every day can be a happy beginning. I know, okay. I know. I guess the only piece of that that kind of resonates with me is in the Johannine sense of eternal life. Like, um, in mm. John's gospel, it's not about the kingdom of God. It's, it's about eternal life and eternal life isn't, I don't think I would submit isn't about immortality of right. human personality. It is about... Pie in the sky when you die. Right. Yeah. It is about those moments where it all comes together, where you understand uh, the divinity in your midst, uh, that God is present with you. Eternal life is a, at one level, it's, I mean, it's complex and it's reductionist if you try to put it all in, in one simple sentence, but it's it's those moments where we are deeply aware of the presence of God in life, in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And in that sense, happy beginning. Well, in that sense, I, I suppose, guess. right? So the, fi the final image of Chicago is, you know, they, they, they turn the corner, Melissa's in that red coat. It's, it's, it's an echo to the end of the Godspell film, right? Like the world starts to come to life and they get lost in the crowd of people. But the black and white world starts to take on color. So I think, I mean, I think what that's illustrating visually is what you're talking about, right? Heaven is now. Heaven is here. Eternity is right in front of you. So yeah, at that level, if that's what we mean by every day can be a happy beginning, okay. Yeah. Yes. Every sense. day I have the possibility of encountering the holy in the people around me, in the leaves and trees and rocks and, you know, in the, the world that God has created, which is beautiful and always being redeemed. I think, I think there is something theologically powerful there. So thank you for... 
uh, giving me another way of thinking about that really that really stupid song that I don't love at the end of at the end of Chicago. Because in every other respect, I have so much love for this material. I really I admire respect the the layers of what they're doing. Yes. It's very funny. It's so clever. Sometimes the jokes are a little over the top. Whatever that you know, but like. I, I, I love the project. In some ways, the project of, Schme- of Schmigadoon, if I'm going to, you know, feels to me so similar to what you and I have been exactly. trying to do on this podcast, right? Help musical theater fans both remember why they love this stuff and also connect it to the deepest loves, which is not just about flim flam and, and excitement, although there is nothing wrong with flim flam <laughs> when Jane Krakowski does Dance 10 Looks 3 all over it. And Anna, I mean, my favorite Easter egg in the whole thing is when she comes sliding on in the, um, in the roller skates, yes. which is, I think, an echo to the fact that Jane Krakowski began her Broadway career in Starlight Express. Yes. So it's like layers of call out and I am just, I'm so here for all of it. So nothing wrong with the campiness of it. And we didn't, and we didn't talk at all about the song that is a, a lift from Chorus Line. Oh my gosh, God, I, that, which is my favorite song in the whole I thing. Need to, I, I need to eat. I need to Why eat. did I have so many kids? Why did I? I need to, I need to, I need to sell my kids. It's, I think that's right. It's, it's, right <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's a direct lift. It's I need to eat. I need to eat. Last night my dinner was a castle. My dinner was a castle. The landlord's calling. I'm out of fishnets. There's not much more that I can have. There's not much more that I can have. How am I gonna feed my kids? Why did I have so many kids? I think I'm gonna have to sell my kids. I think the project is extraordinary. It's a, uh, you keep talking about Easter eggs and you're absolutely right. This is just uh, Easter egg after Easter egg to open and savor. And it bears, in my view, repeated watchings because you're going to find something else that you missed find the first things. time. So layers. Yeah. But and it's also, it's using, it's using this material to preach. I mean, I think it, it Schmigadoon is a sermon it, in the best, or a parable, we might say, in the best, in the best way. Um, asking us to to look at a story, some story that we think we know. Think about the the stuff we love about it, the stuff that we find problematic about it. But then, kind of you know, think about how how will this change me? I don't know that Schmigadoon is going to change me in any you know transformative way. Um, but but I but I that that feels to me like the project of a good musical, right? That that like you're asked to sit in the theater for a couple hours, encounter a story that will really move you. Um, and and in that in that is enough. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's wonderful that it is unremarkable that the protagonists are a mixed race couple. That 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 is uh, you go back to sh- to to South Pacific, where mm-hmm. mixed race couples is the the moral center, the ethical question that drives South Pacific in so many ways. And here we have Josh and Melissa, and that's not even a problem. Or is it a problem? I, I don't... Uh... Well, yeah. I don't know. We talked about this with, with Schmigadoon season one. Like, that was one of my questions about the first season was, it was a colorblind world. We never yeah, named, really, the racial elements. And there's a, there's, a, and there's a little bit of me that thinks, yes, I mean, what, a, what a beautiful image of the kingdom of God right. in which the, the differences that we see as so determinative do not have power to subjugate some people and privilege other people. Yes. And in the world in which we live, and certainly in the world of the contemporary theater... Um, I think a piece of what we're being asked to wrestle with is who benefits from that colorblind story? It tends to be the people who don't ever really have to deal with the fact that their skin color opens all sorts of doorways for them and never shuts a door. So I, I do have questions about the colorblind world. And and with you, I feel like, yes, there is something really uh, beautiful and powerful to me yeah. in, in a world in which that is, that is not the determinative thing that makes, you know, that, that separates some people from other people. I do, I do find that really, uh, really interesting. I also have questions about yeah. it. And Josh sings way more and way better. Way more and sings great. He sings yeah, Keegan Michael, he's a singer. He's a yeah. singer. I mean, it's not a, it's not a Josh Groban voice. It's a, no, it's a musical actor But he acquits voice. himself. But yeah, yeah He acquits himself very effectively. And Cicely yeah. Strong is I love fabulous. that he, he finally finds his, in some ways, like this is Josh's season in some ways, right? Cicely Strong's character, you know, she's in love with with Brigadoon. That that's her that's her sweet spot. But as soon as as soon as Josh sees magic to do, he's like, oh I could get into this, right? Like and then and then finds his role, right? Like he's a he's a cult leader. I mean, I think we get to see the side of Josh that we don't really get to see that he longs to to be a kind of a um to have that kind of a power over people, right? right? To be a, and he is he's a charismatic uh leader of a 
a leader of a movement. That's kind of the the temptation that he that he flirts with. Um, and I love seeing Josh in that way. He's got he's got charisma, and he moves away from his identity being tied up as being a medical technologist, right? Into yeah. yep. discovering the spiritual side, the more affective, the more artistic, the mm-hmm. more aesthetic. He can tell a good parable. He He's a good, a good preacher. Yeah. yeah. No, there's yeah. a there's a there's a vocation. I w- I would say in this guy's life. I would say that for Melissa too. She has that moment right where she finally takes the spot. Like maybe this is my chance to be the diva I have always been longing to be. And you see so how good she good. is. She is. Yeah, so she is so good. good. <laughs> so yeah, I love that they both kind of get the thing that they've been wanting, and then you know it. it in the style of the mid-century kind of dark musical discover it's not all that it's cracked up to be right? right like it's it's not it's not happiness that's not the same as happiness finally getting your dream fulfilled is actually not the same thing as happiness that does feel to me very astute yeah. theologically um, happiness is not found in in doing the thing that you have always dreamed about doing and then getting it um, there's a whole different narrative than that happens on the other side of that yeah. So I've been, I've been, as I've been watching, you know, because in some ways this show also maps onto the trajectory that this podcast has been taking as we've sort of taken ourselves through the world. So I've been, I've been thinking a lot about where do you and I want to go next? And I have, a, I'll just say this publicly on mic. I've got a little bit of a hankering to, to go down the Stephen Schwartz road. Oh, I, I mean, and some yeah. of it's lit, uh, rem, being reminded by Chicago of how much I love Pippin, how much I love Godspell, how much I love Wicked. Yes. Um, there's there's a lot of good Stephen Schwartz stuff that we have not covered on this podcast that I would love to talk about. So um, I'm just throwing that out there. If you have a, if like me, you've got a hankering to think theologically about Stephen Schwartz, um, let us know. Well, and, and uh, Stephen we'll Schwartz we go. is also the lyricist for the Bernstein Mass. Yes. Yep. And and the the music and lyricists for the children of uh for the Prince of Egypt and yes. a bunch of other kind of Disney. Oh, that's and, a great uh, idea. Not just Disney film. That's so a yeah, great he's done idea. some he's done some directly theological material. I would say more than other other writers. Uh, Godspell, Children of Eden, right. uh, Prince of Egypt. This guy is this guy is gauging directly in the the in Hebrew tradition and in in Christian tradition as well. Cool. Let us know what you think. And we'll uh, be back in a podcast feed near you at some point in the future. Until next time. Thanks, Nathan. Until next time. Yep. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.